right. Let's turn together in God's Word to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue the series we began a few weeks ago in the book of Revelation, a series I have titled Victory in Jesus. And this morning we come to the theme of love. Love. What happens to our love over the years? Does our love strengthen? Or does our love weaken and wane? You know, when we think of marriage, we all recognize that there's different stages of love in our marriage as the years go by, isn't there? And while different psychologists and therapists may speak of different stages, one speaks of three relationship stages that take place in a marriage. So stage one is the stage of romantic love, when we are first married and enjoy our time together. But eventually this moves to stage two, one of disillusionment, of distraction. As things become busy, as struggles enter our relationship, And this then leads to stage three, which can go three directions. There's disillusion through divorce. There's adjustment with resignation, or there's adjustment with contentment. So for those of us who are married here this morning, you can ask yourself, what stage are you in? What stage of love in your relationship with your spouse? But since the Bible also pictures the church's relationship with Christ as one between a bride and her husband, we can also see these different stages of love taking place through the life of a local church. And this morning we come to a church that has moved through these stages and is about to reach the final stage of dissolution through divorce. So let us read more about this church in our passage this morning. Again, Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, Ephesus writes, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, And do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life is in the midst of the paradise of God. Brothers and sisters, let us again go before our Lord in prayer. 
O Father, may these words from thousands of years ago to a first century church in the city of Ephesus speak to us today. May your Spirit so be at work that these words will be filled with power so that we will hear you speaking to us today as your word is preached. Father, illumine and enlighten our minds so that we will live in light of the glory of Christ in faithfulness to Him is those who overcome and those who will overcome living through the difficulties and challenges and hardships of this life. And so we pray that you will be with us and bless us this morning, Father, as we hear your word proclaimed and ask these things in the name of our King, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if I was to summarize what this letter reveals to us, it would be this that we must not lose our love. We must not lose our love for God, and we must not lose our love for one another. And we see this first through Christ's words to His church, then in Christ's encouragement to His church, followed by Christ's warning to His church, and finally, Christ's promise to His church. So again, for those of you who like to have those points, first, Christ's words to His church. Second, Christ's encouragement to His church. Third, Christ's warning to His church. And fourth, Christ's promise to His church. Let's begin then with verse 1 in Christ's words to His church. And of course, as chapter 1 has already shown us, Revelation is a letter of apocalyptic prophecy. It comes from Jesus Christ through symbolic visions to the Apostle John so that Christ's churches will hear and keep these words until Christ returns at the end of the age. That's why Revelation then is sent to seven churches in this region of Asia Minor who then represent all of Christ's churches throughout this age, with the number seven symbolizing fullness, completeness, or perfection. But before this letter continues, John gives a vision in the very first chapter of Christ ruling from heaven over this world. See, to Christians who are living in a cursed and corrupt world that is opposed to God and often brings suffering and persecution for believers. It's this picture of Christ and His glory that reassures us of our Savior, and that He is sovereignly in control of everything that takes place. So it's with the glory of Christ revealed to us we are given confidence to persevere and to overcome whatever troubles and trials that we face in this world. 
Which brings us then to the end of chapter 1, where we have been shown Christ as our glorious prophet, priest, and king, who is now reigning over his kingdom until he returns to judge this world. And in this vision, this opening vision, Christ is seen in the midst of seven golden lampstands, which symbolize these seven churches in Asia, as well as having in his right hand seven stars, which are the angels for these seven churches. And I mentioned previously that the word for angel here means messenger, which is why many believe these seven angels refer to seven pastors in these churches. Yet it seems more likely to me that these are seven angels, which is more consistent with the symbolism of stars in the Old Testament. Plus, it's more consistent with the book of Revelation itself, where angels always refers to heavenly beings. But in any case, this brings us now to chapter 2 and chapter 3, where Christ addresses each of these seven churches with a letter before continuing to have John receive these symbolic visions through the rest of Revelation. So, this morning we come to the first of these letters, which is written to the church of Ephesus. So we see in the first verse, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? But what do we know about Ephesus? Well, it was one of the chief central cities through all the Roman Empire, and it was the greatest city throughout all the region of Asia Minor. It was a seaport and a central place of business and commerce in the land. In Acts chapters 19 and 20, we read of the Apostle Paul's time in this city over a couple of years, because it's out of this city that Paul carries out his ministry throughout the entire area. But through all of the hardships and the obstacles that Paul and other Christians had faced in this city, it is in Ephesus, that God prospered the preaching of his word through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it led to a local church beginning. And this is why then in the New Testament, we have a letter written to this church, right? The, the, the letter to the Ephesians. And it's why Paul writes later letters to Paul, to his disciple Timothy as Timothy is then working and serving and leading the Ephesian church as well. But now this church receives another letter, and this letter comes from Christ himself. Through the Apostle John to the angel of the church. And as the letter begins, they're once more shown the glory of of Christ. We go on to read, These things says He who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. This church is then reminded of the opening vision that John had received of Christ's glory. And as we learned from the previous vision, the right hand symbolizes authority and power in Scripture. And holding something in the right hand means to have possession over it, power over it. So Christ here is reminding the Ephesian church that he is in control of all things. 
including the angels who serve him. But he's also the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which represent his churches, which means that Christ is present with his churches. And he is protecting them during their tribulation, including the struggles that the church of Ephesus has been facing. So even in this first verse, we see such a glorious reminder of our Savior Jesus Christ as one who is present with His churches as we gather and who speaks to His churches through what His apostles have written in the Scriptures. Can you imagine the Ephesian church and their anticipation as they receive this letter and are gathered together to hear the words of Christ themselves read. Well, brothers and sisters, Christ continues to be present with his churches when we gather. And he continues speaking to us when his word is preached. May we all then recognize this weekly sacred opportunity to gather together in worship where we are present with our Savior and hear Him speak. But after we have this opening of Christ's words to His church, we move to Christ's words where we read in verses 2 to 3 of Christ's encouragement to His church. See, in these verses, Christ encourages this church in their faithfulness. He, he begins in verse 2 by saying, I know your works. Now, this is said to all of the seven churches, because Christ knows all. And he then goes on to explain specifically these works in what comes next to each church. The, the, these works, by the way, mean more than good deeds, but they refer to the conduct and way of living of these Christians. But the specific works of the Ephesians that Christ recognizes in this letter, we see there first in verse 2, are your labor, and second, your patience. The church's labor is then expanded on in the rest of verse 2, and the church's patience is then expanded on in verse 3. You see, in their labor, they have sought to uphold a godly lifestyle by seeking to maintain their purity. Let's read the rest of verse 2. That you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So they will not allow those who are evil among them. And they do this by upholding the gospel and biblical truth. So Christ commends them for this. Now, it might be helpful for us to turn back to Acts chapter 20. Let's go back to Acts 20 for a moment, verses 25 to 31, because here we have Paul as he's about to leave Ephesus. And he calls together the elders of the church in the city 
to give them his parting words. Now listen to what he says to them before he leaves. The last words they hear from the Apostle Paul as he's been present with them. Again, Acts 20, verses 25 to 31. Paul says to the leaders of the church of this city, Ephesus, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Do you hear those final words of warning from the Apostle Paul to this church in Ephesus? Well, it looks like this church has taken those words to heart. They cannot bear those who are evil. But this was a a common problem for all the churches in the New Testament. And it remains a problem for all churches through this age, this danger of false teaching. It's why the Apostle Paul also warned the Corinthian church of this problem of false apostles in 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, when he writes of those who come preaching another Jesus whom the apostles had not preached or receiving a different spirit which they have not received or a different gospel which they have not accepted. You see, here it seems as if these false apostles have also come into the church of Ephesus. But unlike the Corinthian church, which was putting up with it, the Ephesians tested them and found them to be liars. Now, to test means to examine their teachings to see if they are valid and true. So this church wisely and rightly didn't simply accept the words of these apostles. They didn't simply believe them because of their claimed positions of leadership. But they tested them in light of the truths of God's word and found them to be false, to be liars. They are seeking to maintain the church's purity of teaching and doctrine. And again, Christ encourages them as they do so. But not only have they sought to maintain doctrinal purity, in verse 3, we read that they have persevered through these spiritual battles. And they have patience in the midst of their ongoing challenges. Let's, let's look at verse 3 again. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and not become weary. In other words, they have endured in their faith through hardships and false teaching, all while laboring for the sake of Christ's name and standing up to defend him no matter the cost. And through all of their dedication, they didn't become weary. 
They have not let troubles or tiredness keep them from continuing this pursuit of purity, but they have remained committed to their biblical discernment and to their spiritual watchfulness. Now, if I was to stop right here, to be honest, brothers and sisters, I would say this would be an ideal church. For many Reformed people, this would be the kind of church you'd want to join. Doctrinal orthodoxy? Check. Biblical purity? Check. Defense of the faith? Check. Yet this isn't the end of what Christ has to say to this church. And his remaining words are sobering. But before we continue, let's not miss the encouragement that Christ begins with in this letter to his church. Because churches are to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And I am thankful that we are a Reformed Baptist church, one that's committed to biblical truth and one that's committed to holding a confession that summarizes and upholds these biblical truths. May we be like the Ephesians, a church that cannot bear with those who are evil, but who test everything we hear by the standard of the Word of God and expose false teaching, never tolerating it among us. May we also receive such words of commendation from the mouth of Jesus. But as we've seen, Christ's Words does church do not end here, do they? So we come in verses 4 to 6 to read of Christ's warning to his church. And in verse 4, Christ says to them, Nevertheless, I have this against you. How would you like to hear those words from the lips of Jesus? they would send chills down my spine. How I don't want to let down my Savior. And through all of our church's commitment to upholding biblical truth and efforts to carry out faithful ministry, nothing would sadden me more than as your pastor to hear Christ pronounce these words against us. What does Christ hold against them? That's what we read at the end of the first four. You have left your first love. This church has left their first love. The love that they started with in the Christian life has gone cold. And they have been carrying on their ministry out of Christian obligation. Yet we, brothers and sisters, are called to be a people of love. Let's remind ourselves of this truth from Jesus himself by going back to Matthew chapter 22, looking at verses 37 to 39 together, because here Christ has once again brought before the church of Ephesus the greatest commandments. And when Christ was asked, what is the great commandment of the law? 
His answer is found in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And yet, brothers and sisters, this no longer describes the church of Ephesus. They may be biblically sound, but they have become loveless. And this is the danger of dead orthodoxy, where you believe the right things, but you're not living out the love which you have received from Christ. Jesus also warned his disciples about this in this time of tribulation in Matthew 24, verses 13 to 14, where Christ warned them that it, there would be a time when the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. That's what happened in, the first, in, in this church, the church of Ephesus. Their love had grown cold. And we continue to see this all around us today among those who are doctrinally sound and care a great deal about defending biblical truth. We have nicknames for them. Fighting fundies, heresy hunters, cage stage Calvinists. But here, Christ asks us to look in the mirror and ask if that's what we see of us. And when confronted with this warning from Jesus, what does he call the Ephesians to do? Verse 5, three things. First, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Second, repent. And third, do the first works. Remember, repent, and do the first works. First, let's consider these each. Remember from where you've fallen. Th think about this. Remember what your life was like when you first believed in Christ? The joy that filled your soul? Your eagerness to share Christ with others? Your excitement in coming to church? Your willingness to give up everything to follow Christ for nothing to get in your way of your relationship with Jesus. Remember that time of love. Now, similar to how a wife may reflect on her first years of her marriage to remember why she married her husband and rekindle her love for him, so we should remember our first years as a believer and how great our love was for God and for others through Him. So they must remember from where they've fallen, but then they must repent. It's not that we merely look to the glory days or the early years. We must turn away from our lovelessness and repentance and turn to Christ who loved us so much 
that he willingly offered himself in our place, dying on the cross for our salvation. You see, we can only love inasmuch as we have experienced the love of Christ for us. Which is why if you have not known Christ, you are missing out on the greatest love that any of us have ever known. As you remain in rebellion against God and your sin. So I plead with you today to come to Christ, to look to Christ who so loved you that he took the very judgment of God you deserve as he died on the cross in your place. You look to Christ trust in what he's done for you through faith and you can rejoice in such love but here's the challenge brothers and sisters most of us here know it all too well that love doesn't stay things change lives get busy a new normal develops in our lives. And the love slowly goes away. Here we're called to recognize this by remembering the love that we had in the past and repenting for our lovelessness by looking to Christ and his love for us. So remember from where you have fallen, repent, and third, do the first works. These are the works, the things that we used to do in the early days of our faith as we were devoted to Christ and filled with our love for him before it became so crowded out with other things. See, this is not a minor course correction this church needs to make. But Christ threatens to de-church this church. So we go on to read in verse 5, Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So if they don't repent, Christ will come and remove the church's lampstand. Christ says, I will no longer be with you. If this happens, the church of Ephesus will no longer shine God's light into a spiritually dark and sin-filled world through the Holy Spirit. But their light will be snuffed out. And they'll be returned to the darkness under God's judgment. The doors of the church will be closed, whether or not they continue to meet or not. Because they have forsaken the first and greatest commandment of love. Isn't this what 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us? Many of us know that chapter well. That no matter what else I may have in the Christian life, if I have not love, what? 
It profits me nothing. So if I have all the biblical truth and doctrinal orthodoxy, but have not love, what do we see here? Christ is not with us. We are not his church. And don't miss that Christ says he will come quickly. Because time is running out. And they simply cannot delay and continue living in this way anymore. Now let me be clear. Love will not return to this church by them trying harder to love more. That's not what Christ says to them. But their love will return by looking to the one that so loved them that he offered himself to them in their place. After all, he is the one giving them this warning. See, this church's love will be kindled and fueled as they see the one whom John has revealed in all of his glory. Because he is the one who is now warning them so they will remember, repent, and do the first works. But we must also remember this in the midst of Christ's warning to his church. That such love does not mean neglecting doctrinal purity and biblical faithfulness. Which is why we read in verse 6, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You see, it's out of love as the root which the flower of purity properly grows. And love for God and fellow believers does not mean tolerating sinful beliefs or actions. It doesn't mean compromising what we believe or minimizing our doctrinal convictions. This is why Christ states his appreciation for their hatred of the Nicolaitans. Because love for God and love for others means hating what God hates. And while we don't know much about the Nicolaitans, they're only mentioned here in this chapter of Revelation, their beliefs and practices are never explained. This we know. That whatever the Nicolaitans taught, Christ himself hates it. He hates it, and so we cannot tolerate such biblical corruption or compromise among us. We must see this false teaching for what it is, beliefs and practices which Christ hates. But as we consider this warning, what a sobering warning this is for us as a church this morning. I confess that I have really had to struggle, both as your pastor and as my own soul, in my own soul personally, as I've wrestled over this question. Have I lost my first love? Have we, as a church, 
lost our first love. I believe it would do us all well to ask ourselves that question. Because today is the day of repentance. May we all seek God's forgiveness through Christ's love for us so that we can love in his strength by returning to our first love. Because, brothers and sisters, when we do, there's a wonderful promise from Christ. And that's what we read in verse 7, Christ's promise to his church. Let's read. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there is a call not only for the Ephesian church, but for all churches to hear what the Spirit says to them. It's because these words are words of God revealed by Christ through the Holy Spirit to us that we must hear them. And all churches who hear this letter read must ask ourselves, are we like the church of Ephesus? Does this describe us? Have we left our first love in the midst of a zeal to defend our doctrinal faithfulness and fidelity? Remember, hearing means more than merely listening to these words. It means more than simply receiving these encouragements. It means more than recognizing the warning. But hearing means keeping these things by obeying Christ's call for repentance and returning to our first love. Because when we hear what the Spirit says to the churches through this letter, when we live this life of love through our faith in Christ and in our repentance towards God, look at what is promised to us. In verse 7, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. We will overcome our enemies through Christ's triumphant work for us. So while we may struggle against Satan, the world, and our own sinful flesh, Christ has done everything for us to overcome these challenges in our lives. And our victory comes through His victory. As we walk in the confidence that Christ has conquered all for us, which is why we can persevere in this world under Christ's reign as our Lord and King. You see, we depend on Christ and on His strength in our daily walk of faith to overcome a world that remains opposed to Christ until He returns to reunite us with Him. So what we see here is how our faith in Christ leads to our faithfulness in Christ until our faith is fulfilled by Christ when He returns. And what happens to all of us who overcome? He will give to eat from the tree of life. Of course, this brings us all the way back to God's original creation in the Garden of Eden. With the tree of life in the center of the garden, which promised eternal life. 
for mankind to enjoy in God's presence forever. But we see the security we have as those who overcome in Christ when he says, I will give to eat. See, eating from this tree of life does not depend on us. It does not depend on our effort. It does not depend on our success in this life, but it is freely given to us by Christ, our Savior. And this tree of life, we read at the end of the verse, is one which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Brothers and sisters, we look forward to a paradise. What a future we have to look forward to in Christ. Now, when you think of a paradise, we've all been influenced by different commercials and travel agents and exotic locations in movies, these places that are seen as a paradise in this world, these exotic beaches, expensive getaways that make us envious and dream of maybe vacationing there. What's amazing is that nothing compares with our heavenly paradise in Christ. And we not only dream of spending a few days there on vacation, we look forward to an eternity there in the very presence of God Himself. And it will last forever. So what Adam could not eat in sin, we will eat in glory. And that's why we can go to the end of the Revelation. You can turn to Revelation chapter 22, where we read in the first five verses of this tree of life. Where John writes of us with Christ, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. What a promise Christ gives to His church. Brothers and sisters, after considering and looking at this letter this morning, do you see why we must not lose our love for God and our love for one another? We must not lose our love, our love for God and our love for one another. And this is something I want us to remember. There's something would be good for us to write down and keep in our minds in light of this letter. As a church, that our devotion to biblical doctrine and our, and our commitment to Baptist confessionalism must never become a substitute for love. 
me say that again, our devotion to biblical doctrine and our commitment to Baptist confessionalism must never become a substitute for love. So if we think about the relationship stages of love in marriage, where is our church in our relationship with our bride, Jesus Christ? Now, I am not suggesting that we're in the same place as the Ephesian church, but I am also not naive enough to think that we do not share in their struggle. So let's all take to heart the call from verse 5. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember those early days of zeal that you had in love for God, in love for God's people because of the love you'd experienced in Christ. Remember of the amazing work of Christ in your life, how you couldn't help but live in gratitude for such love and grace. But not only should we remember from where we have fallen, we must repent. To repent for our lovelessness. To repent of the love growing cold in our hearts as we have all too often filled our hearts with other things. As Christianity has become normal, as the Christian life is just part of who we are. Oh, how we must repent and recognize afresh the love of Christ, which brings the forgiveness for our sins. But brothers and sisters, let us remember from where we have fallen, let us repent, and let us do the first works. We will become a people eager and ready to do what we naturally did in those early days and years of our salvation. Here's the, the, the question I've been wrestling with all through this time as I've been studying this passage. What would be different about Cornerstone Fellowship Church if we took Christ's message to heart and returned to our first love. My prayer is that our Savior will allow us to see such a blessing of work among us. May we hear what the Spirit says to us and not move in our marriage to Christ from the stage of disillusionment and distraction to the stage of disillusion and divorce. But may we remember our first stage so we'll reach the stage of contentment in Christ's love so that we will love God and we will love others. And while I am thankful that we are a biblically faithful and doctrinally orthodox and sound Reformed Baptist Church. I hope that our community will know us first and foremost for our love, for our love for God and for our love for one another.
May they know we are Christians by our love. Let us pray. Oh, Father, may you fill the, these words to us with the weight they need to have in our hearts and in our minds. May this not be a message we hear with our ears but yet do not penetrate into our souls. But as far as we may have strayed from our first love, Father, oh, help us to remember, to repent, and to do the first works as those who will overcome by the grace of God through Jesus Christ as our Savior in the strength of His Spirit, may we indeed be a people of love. May we be a church known for our love because our love is the outflowing and the fruit of the love, the great love You have poured out for us in Christ. Father, we pray for all these things in the name of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.